The following is used with permission of the Columbia University Press. Hi, I'm Ethan Warren, and you're listening to Pod Thomas Anderson, a nine-part miniseries on the films of Paul Thomas Anderson, brought to you by One Heat Minute Productions. Every week, I'm bringing you excerpts from my book, The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha, now available wherever you order your books, as well as insights on Anderson and his work from critics, podcasters, actors, and more. This week, I'll be discussing Anderson's fourth feature, Punch Drunk Love, with guests Joe Perra, Paul Brad Logan, and Aaron Armstrong. All book excerpts are used with permission of Columbia University Press. In 2002, Paul Thomas Anderson attempted a counterintuitive trick. He recruited his favorite comedy star, master of populist juvenilia Adam Sandler, for a radical deconstruction of the Sandler archetype. In rough description, the protagonist of Punch Drunk Love, the hapless and emotionally volatile Barry Egan, played by Sandler, might sound as though he could fit easily into the world of broad comedies that Sandler starred in between his leading man breakout, Billy Madison, and the vehicle directly preceding Punch Drunk Love, Mr. Deeds. Particularly intrigued by Sandler's ability to shift between meekness and overpowering rage, Anderson set about creating a world operating on something more closely resembling emotional verisimilitude, though the highly stylized milieu of Punch Drunk Love could hardly be described as realistic. Through this lens, he was able to interrogate the suspensions of disbelief required to tolerate Sandler's screen presence and provoke the audience to consider how exactly it might feel to encounter, or to be, a man balanced so precariously on the razor's edge between repression and aggression. Doctor, right? Yeah. I don't like myself sometimes. Can you help me? Barry, I'm a dentist. Hi, this is Georgia. This is Barry Egan. So what do you do, Barry? I have my own business. Uh, we have a non-breakable handle. Let me demonstrate for you. You're married, aren't you? No. Barry? There's this friend of mine from work, and I want you to meet her. This is Lena. Hi. Hi. Do you have a girlfriend? No. It must be weird for you to have so many sisters. Actually, no, it's very nice. All Remember right. we used to call you gay boy and get all mad? What's that? We were calling you gay boy, and you got so mad. I saw your picture, and I really wanted to meet you. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, are you lying? <laughs> no. I didn't want to get too far along on going out and be hiding something. This is Barry. Hey, it's Georgia. How did you get this number? I was wondering if maybe you could help me out with some money. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. You've just made a war for yourself that you can't afford. I'm going to Hawaii on Friday. Hawaii? I was thinking about going there. Really? I'm going to start a collection of puddings and coupons that can be redeemed for freaking flyer miles. That's insane. Barry. You canceled your credit card. That's a bunch of bull! Get your supervisor on the phone! Yeah. What's your name, sir? You're sick. No, no, no. Shut up! Shut up! Shut, 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 shut up! Are you threatening me? Yes. That wasn't good! You're dead! So much strength in me, you have no idea. I have a love in my life. It makes me stronger than anything you can imagine. He needs me, he needs me, he needs me. 
The plot of Punch Drunk Love is relatively simple. Barry Egan is a pathologically inhibited owner of a distribution center for novelty utility items, including whimsical plungers termed fungers. Harassed constantly by his seven overbearing sisters and tasked with overseeing a workplace that seems perpetually on the verge of catastrophic accident, Barry's routine is interrupted by two simultaneous events. He impulsively calls a phone sex line, embroiling himself in a maelstrom of harassment and extortion, and he is introduced to Lena, played by Emily Watson, a preternaturally endearing woman who is powerfully drawn to Barry despite his seeming lack of personal magnetism. While this unlikely pair takes their first tentative steps towards romance, the forces of extortionist kingpin and mattress salesman Dean Trumbull, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, close in on Barry. Following a spur-of-the-moment trip to Hawaii, during which Barry and Lena consummate their relationship, Trumbull's goons attack, injuring Lena and galvanizing Barry to focus his chaotic, aggressive urges on neutralizing the amoral mattress man. When Barry travels to Utah to confront Trumbull at his mattress store, the two come face to face for a surprisingly non-violent detente, in which Barry asserts that his love for Lena makes him, quote, more powerful than you can possibly imagine, end quote, and the two agree, that's that, leaving Barry to return home and begin his new life with his new love. No description of the plot could do justice to the atonal chamber piece that is Punch Drunk Love, a film that externalizes Barry's agonized interior life via a host of alienating formal choices, including unnerving interplays between extreme brightness and dank shadows, and a nerve-jangling soundscape composed of countless percussive instruments. Barry's world, and obviously the directing and the music and the way everything shot really highlights this as well, just feels like a horror movie. Like his existence, it is so stressful and it, you feel his anxiety of like existing within a work structure with people that he works with that he doesn't really connect with, with um, his family who he exists because they're his family, but he doesn't seem to have any real connection to anymore. And if anything, they, they, they're holding him back from really understanding who he is as a person. And then just this, this guilt that in this movie, like, you know, literally tracks him down and, and threatens his last, or his, his real first chance to become a person who is in love and exists with someone else. Like that, that, that feeling that I had growing up Catholic, like it is so perfectly um, matched by this movie. So perfectly expressed with Barry's character in this movie. I don't know. Maybe it's a score that makes it feel like a real kind of traditional romance movie and just a, mm. I don't know. This one where you can walk away feeling somewhat good at the end too, which is nice. The result is an immersive vision of anxiety and alienation, one that, perhaps inevitably, struggled to find its audience on initial release, narrowly missing the break-even point, at least according to publicly circulated financial data. The film's box office gross is reported at just over $24.5 million, and the budget at $25 million. It was the first Anderson film to fail to turn a profit since Hard Eight, though it would not be the last. Critical response to Punch Drunk Love tended towards the positive, though critics found themselves grasping for a framework through which to view this unusual object. A.O. Scott suggested that, quote, poetry is perhaps the best way to think about the film's balance of freeform inspiration and formal control, end quote, while Moira McDonald chose another art form, describing the film as, quote, set in waltz time, end quote. Anne Hornaday suggested with tongue evidently in cheek that the film's enigmas would soon prove the stuff of academic investigation. Quote, you can almost see the PhD theses now, the piano in the pudding, the end of dissonance, and the possibility of just desserts in the oeuvre of P.T. Anderson, end quote. 
Um, well, what what's really interesting and what I love about Punch Drunk Love is how um, explosively alive and liberated the movie feels. Um, I, I, and I think it I think it marks a real um, dramatic shift in in Paul's career. I, you know, I think I think it's at this point he enters a a very different trajectory as a as a filmmaker like he seems to me to be a little more interested in in uh capturing a feeling um than than anything else and, and i think this is the point of uh, departure for that you know i i think it was always probably an intention of his before punch drunk love his movies all um uh, before that all all feel a little more contained to me it's not i, I you know it's it's not i love those movies um and it's not that they don't have like a deeply uh, a personal uh, investment in the story or these uh, like incredibly human moments um but but punch drunk and and his subsequent movies seem more open ended in terms of um i think the narrative and the, the visuals it just feels like he's he's moved into a bigger plane um w- with this film and the suggestion that this Adam Sandler film might in fact be inaccessibly erudite contributed to something of a slobs versus snobs narrative as audiences greeted Punch Drunk Love with more open contempt than those hesitantly admiring critics. How it was really uh, Adam Sandler's first uh, big, you know, uh, uh, he showed his acting chops in a new sort of way in this movie and that was very fun and exciting. And seeing up against like actors like Philip Seymour Hoffman was really cool to see that a comedy guy could uh, hold his own and then some in a movie like this. I mean, I grew up in the '90s, so it was Adam Sandler was the, the goofball. I remember seeing uh, Happy Gilmore for the first time uh, with my older cousin, and that kind of blew my mind about how uh, about uh, how funny something could be. And uh, I don't know. It was just you know you're right at that age where you're slightly too young for a lot of it, but it felt very, very cool and funny and, and goofy, and it was just like the perfect movie for say I don't know maybe like I was ten, nine or ten at the time. It was unbelievable. I do enjoy Adam Sandler's more serious stuff. I mean, he's an excellent actor, but this I think Punch Truck Love was the first movie that kind of made everybody aware of just how good he was as a serious actor i think all of pta's movies are very funny i think this movie is easily his funniest and it's a movie that i feel like doesn't get enough credit for being as funny as it is they i watched this last night before recording this i watched it by myself i laughed out loud probably 25 plus times at different lines in this movie and i don't i'm not one of those people that laughs out loud when i'm by myself it's a communal experience especially a movie that i've seen this many times but it's because it's like an insidious sense of humor it's not like yeah it has the big funny moments where like you know louise guzman's chair breaks and he sits up and everyone just kind of moves on but even just the little lines like you know barry i'm a dentist or stuff like that and the way it's underplayed is so it's so funny and it's it's like funny in a way that uh, even though i will defend a lot of adam sandler's straight comedy work not all of it but a, but a lot of it 
it's funny in a way that I think even that really speaks to why Adam Sandler at his best is such a funny comedian, why he got to start in Saturday Night Live and he's kind of a, you know, a comedy idol to a lot of people is because everything he says feels so vulnerable and human, but also slightly askew to like what anyone else's perspective would be. And so all his little commentary, whether it's like him or even physical bits where he like runs back when his sister and Emily Watson show up for the first time and he quickly runs back and he falls and he runs into his office and he puts one single finger on the piano and stares with his arm on his hip. Like that is a kind of a small piece of physical humor, but it just encapsulates his character so perfectly as this. I don't even know how to exist in my own office at my own business. And so I'm going to put one finger on the piano and somehow that's going to, that's going to express who I am to these people. And it's, it's so fucking funny. It is so funny. And I just feel like there's just moment after moment of that. After the film received a D plus cinema score, a poll measuring the immediate responses of audiences exiting theatrical screenings, Barbara Brotman of the Chicago Tribune wrote an article examining this discrepancy between critical engagement and consumer rejection. Brotman found that audiences felt duped by the film's marketing, with Anderson having described it as his version of an Adam Sandler comedy, a rom-com, and a tribute to classic MGM musicals. The film is all of these things, but Anderson's off-kilter approach left some believing they had been sold a false bill of goods. We'll be right back after this. This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Quick break. The opening moments of Punch Drunk Love find Barry Egan hunched behind a small desk in a barren corner of his warehouse, a tight cluster of visual interests stashed in the upper left-hand corner of a frame otherwise comprised of bare fluorescent-lit concrete. A strange, reverb-heavy clanging draws Barry outside into the pre-dawn light of Chatsworth, a neighborhood in the northwest corner of Los Angeles' San Fernando Valley. The vast industrial thoroughfare that Barry surveys is peaceful until two shocking events occur simultaneously. 
First, a car cruises out of the vanishing point only to abruptly hit the curb opposite Barry and flip, sending a screeching mass of torn metal sliding across the concrete. Second, this display of carnage is interrupted by the van that pulls up in front of Barry, from which an unseen passenger deposits a harmonium on the curb at his feet before disappearing without a word. Here in microcosm is the vision of the San Fernando Valley, colloquially the Valley, that Paul Thomas Anderson paints in his third consecutive feature to be set in his native region, an eerie urban wasteland infused with the potential for shocking horror and even more shocking grace. This rendering may be less traditionally realistic than Anderson's preceding efforts to capture the area on film, but it follows a central ecstatic truth. In Punch Drunk Love, the Andersonian Valley is heightened by the artist's emotion and interpretation, a portrait possessed of a distinctive flavor, lonely and sterile, simultaneously overbright and gloomy, that his prior, more literal efforts lack. So I started really thinking about this movie, and you know, it's, it's always been a movie that I've just been drawn to and fascinated by. And, but it was a little bit inexplicable as to what it was. Was it just charm? Was it the performances? Was it the style? Was it the energy and the, 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 the strange sort of violent tone and uh, the danger that's permeating in this movie? And I, 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 I've never really gone much deeper than just my, my, my um, um, fascination and draw to this movie. Um, but when I started to really think of it um and, and sort of all of paul's movies um i think they are they are all in some way about um vulnerability um and and the ends we go to protect ourselves from from our vulnerabilities and and what do we do to hide our hearts and and, and how do we break free from those self-imposed or or sort of societally imposed restraints that um that keep our hearts so restricted and so in, in inside ourselves. And I think that's certainly true in the characters in Sydney and, and Boogie Nights and Magnolia. Uh, but in Punch Drunk Love, I, I, I sort of started to realize, I think the movie itself really embodies that open-hearted idea, you know? Um, and I think even in those early films, you can feel Paul's desire to, to break free from the the restraints of a story and, and what a movie means and what it has to be and, and, and just get to this core feeling, um, you know, and, and let that feeling, that exploration uh, be the be all end all of the entire experience, um, which for Paul, I'm going to take some liberty. I, I think that is love. I think that's what that's that's what I get. That's what I think most people get that, that Paul um, is, is drawn to is love. And, and in Punk Drunk, I think that I think it's it's the it's the great culmination of that and it's just like okay let's abandon everything and let's just explore the idea of 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 love um and and i think in doing so he um he doesn't sacrifice his command you know over the uh over his craft or anything like that but i think he seems to give a little bit more power maybe to his instincts as, as far as how this story unfolds um and I, I think that that approach in this movie just completely opens the ceiling. And, and his, this is when his movies, I think, enter a, a whole new stratosphere. When Tom Carson wrote in 2014 that Anderson is, quote, a regional artist in a way that doesn't have many screen equivalents, end quote, he was referring to Anderson's perceived status as an artist unusually focused on Southern California, the area in which six of his nine features are predominantly set. The status is one that Anderson actively cultivated around the release of Magnolia. 
1999 essay for the New York Times entitled A Valley Boy Who Found a Home Not Far From Home, he wrote that the pop imagination typically associates the valley with, quote, stupid girls, malls, and bad hair, but the valley also has the closest thing to a real life in the Los Angeles area. It's pretty near normal, or as normal as a place can be when bordering Hollywood, end quote. The cultural shorthand surrounding the valley that Anderson notes here was largely cemented by the 1982 release of the novelty single Valley Girl, co-written by Frank Zappa and his teenage daughter Moon. With spoken word lyrics culled from Moon's own conversations with friends, quote, I like love going into like clothing stores and stuff, I like buy the neatest miniskirts and stuff, it's like so bitchin', end quote. The song popularized a slang dialect dubbed Val-speak, one that was quickly stigmatized, fostering an image of valley culture as defined by, in the words of linguist Riley Nykem, quote, purposeless and annoying, end quote, habits. As John Peterson wrote in a 2000 profile of Anderson, quote, Angelinos feel duty-bound to hate the valley in the way other Americans feel duty-bound to loathe Los Angeles itself, end quote. Quote, I was really embarrassed for the longest time that that's where I lived and that's where I grew up, end quote, Anderson says of the Valley on the Boogie Nights commentary track. Quote, I would look back at my favorite directors and think, okay, there's Howard Hawks, and boy, he served in the war, and there's Ernst Lubitsch, who escaped Germany, and all these wonderful things going on in their lives that you were supposed to bring to a movie, end quote. In his 1999 New York Times essay, he added to this list of more theoretically worthy perspectives, quote, I was ashamed of growing up in the valley, thinking if I was not from the big city of New York or the farm fields of Iowa, I had nothing to say. I have never been in a war like John Ford. I am not from France like Francois Truffaut. I'm not even from Chicago like David Mamet, end quote. Having ruled out the wonderful personal experiences of armed combat and flight from fascism, Anderson expressed a resigned acceptance on the Boogie Nights commentary. Quote, I'm from the Valley, and I guess that's what I have to make movies about. So Barry, uh, played by Adam Sandler, for uh, those two who don't know, what, what I read in, into that character is that he's made some sort of a conscious attempt to um, begin living with his heart on the outside, vulnerably. You know, he strikes me as the type of character that his entire life has always tried to remain sort of hidden, um, tried to out of, you know, maybe out of focus. He's tried to hide his heart, protect his feelings. Um, but when we meet him at the beginning of this movie, he's wearing this incredible suit, this suit that catches everybody's attention. And we know this is new for him because every character um, that we meet talks about this suit. This is out of character for him. And and this is a, a wardrobe you can't not not be seen wearing. Um, so, you know, I think Barry is like, sort of courageously putting himself out there. Um, he's he's letting people see him. Um, he's, he's not hiding anymore, you know? And I, I, I feel like he spent his life trying to c control himself and we can, we can sense, um, you know, he's, he's sort of bursting at the seams to be free. There's two fan theories surrounding this movie. I haven't asked anybody about this yet, so I'm just gonna bounce it off you and see what you think. The first fan sure. theory is that Lena is an alien. Do you have any thoughts on the idea of Lena being an alien? I hadn't thought of that, but that would be, uh, yeah, why not? Oh, sure, yeah, sure, yes. No, I have, I have not considered the idea that Lena is an alien, but now I will have to rewatch it with that in mind. Yeah, Anderson's quote, somebody asked him, and Anderson's quote was, uh, let me see, uh, have you ever met anybody as lovely as Emily Watson who didn't come from outer space? 
Uh, and then the other one is, is some people see this as a, a Superman movie. Barry's suit is blue with the red, and uh, he goes up against Mattress Man, uh, LL, Lena Leonard, and Lois Lane. People really go deep on it. Any thoughts on whether this is a Superman movie? No. Uh, no, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think Superman feels has that undercurrent of anger in the same way that Adam Sandler does. So, if Adam Sandler's character had Superman's powers, he would destroyed a lot of stuff in the process of this film that I don't think Superman would have uh, done. I think about Robert Altman's Popeye with this movie, not just because um, it's a it's a it's a song uh, he uses. He needs me from Robert Altman's Popeye for this for a soundtrack for this movie. And um, Robert Altman's Popeye was a movie. It's the first movie I ever saw in a theater. I saw it pretty much every day of its theatrical run. I, I love it, but I've never really thought about it in conjunction with this movie outside of using that song. Um, but when I when I started to examine what is it about that song and what is it about that movie in relation to, to, to this movie, and I, all these parallels started coming up that sort of like uh, surprised me a little bit. You know, I started thinking of Barry as almost like a Popeye sort of character down to these these, you know, this this soliloquy, this this ongoing monologue, these strange asides that he's constantly like talking about that are very much akin to the way Robin Williams uh, sort of mumbles um, throughout um, Robert Altman's um, Popeye, you know, and, and and Barry even has his Bluto in the form of you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman's incredible mattress man character, and um, you know his spinach in this movie is love. And and once he gets that, he's powerful. You know, he has he has the 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 power and the strength now to to stand up to his sisters and and to go fight Bluto and to go pursue the thing that he loves. And he flies. I mean, literally on a uh, on an airplane. But you know, it gives him it gives him the power to fly. Um, and, and even down to his you know unique and, and distinct uniform. Um, so I, th I started to see, oh, maybe there was a little bit more in common with that movie than I first uh, thought. I guess it's just all about that one scene where Adam Sandler and Philip Seymour Hoffman have their showdown, and I just rewatched it a couple of times. It's just the, the perfect scene. It's so good, and I think that that's what, uh, that's what stands out to me. It's so strange, but it's also so... It somehow feels believable but i don't know why because if it didn't have if the lighting wasn't as good as it was it would probably seem ridiculous but it's just uh, one of the scenes that kind of always is in my head from 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 everything i've seen in my life fuck you you're a pervert you can be a pervert and not pay for it You called a phone second. Shut up. I didn't do anything. I'm a nice man. I mind my own business. So you tell me that's that before I beat the hell from you. I have so much strength in me, you have no idea. I have a love in my life. 
It makes me stronger than anything you can imagine. I would say that's that mattress, man. You came all the way from LA to tell me this. Yes, I did. Tell the cops? No. That's that. Also, I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who has only just a career of amazing performances. I also think this is his best scene. Like, that scene where he's yelling, you know, shut, shut, shut the fuck up. I mean, that that may be the funniest three minutes of acting anyone has put on screen. It's, you know, he's, he's in it for a few minutes, but it's truly, truly amazing. And, and this is, maybe at the beginning of this movie, this is his first attempt. And as frightening as it is to, to, to let go... And, and let yourself um, be seen. He is doing it. You know, he's at conflict with it, but God damn it, he's you know he's he's trying. He's he's rescuing a harmonium from the street and bringing music into his world. And he's you know he's agreeing to keep an eye on Emily Watson's uh, car, even though all of these are like a really difficult decisions that he's making. He's doing it, and I think at that same respect, I think Paul is doing it in this movie too because. Now he just seems so much more interested in capturing this feeling than, than simply making a movie. Like, it's, this is bigger than a movie. It's more ambitious than that. And, and, and the only way I, I think you can make something like that is, is to, you know, put your heart on the outside and, uh, and just follow it, you know? And, and he seems, Paul seems like, okay, you know what? Let's get messy with this movie. You know, this is life. This is my heart, and it's scary, and it's uncertain, and I don't know what's going to happen, um, but I'm going to keep going this way because I have to, because this is who I want to be. Um, and, and so this is a movie that's not afraid to show its scratches, you know, like when it when it blows out the sound, and, the, and this incredible scene in, in, in a restaurant when, when, when Adam Sandler's character fights a bathroom, or, or the, 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 the camera jostles in this really sort of messy... Um, um, uncontrolled way when, when Adam Sandler is uh, speaking to a sixth-tone worker uh, on his couch in his apartment. And, and it, it sort of celebrates those blemishes. It doesn't hide from them because it's like, I think it's saying we're trying to show that this movie is alive. It feels alive. And, and that level of exposure, whether it's Paul making the movie or Barry in the movie, that willingness to um, be vulnerable is really dangerous um, because now you're out there and people can see you and you know, I think, I think you can get really hurt. And I, I, I think Paul really shoots the movie to, to let us feel that danger. Um, you know, it's jittery, it's unruly, it's chaotic. The energy is really aggressive and assaulting and, and all the elements, you know, sound design and cinematography and production design and all these elements, they convey this uh, threat. And, you know, we know this is a love story, but at any moment, things 
can go terribly, terribly wrong um, because the control is gone. You know, the, the defenses, the protections, they've, they've been removed. There's, um, you know, we're, we're, we're in the unknown now and, and we just have to trust ourselves because our hearts uh, you know, are true and love is the only thing that's going to save us. And I think that's what Barry's after. I think that's what Paul's after. And then when they get that, when they when they get that connection, when it when it happens in the movie, it is like it's so perfectly intoxicating. You know, it's so visceral. It's like love in its purest and simplest form, whether it's for a person or a movie or a song or, or whatever fills your heart with this this um, sensation that makes you feel both superhuman and off balance all at once. Punch Drunk Love was the first Paul Thomas Anderson film I ever saw, and my reaction to it was violently negative. I felt rejected by the movie, mocked for my inability to comprehend all its bizarre gambits and flourishes. After all these years, it still inspires strong feelings in me, and I feel like I'm still ruminating on and refining that initial question. Who the hell is this Paul Thomas Anderson guy, and what the hell does he think he's doing? For the first few movies of his career, the answers to those questions were pretty self-evident, but with Punch Drunk Love, his thought process shifted into a more obscure realm, and as a result, the work would grow richer and deeper. Where I once felt rejected by this film, I now feel compelled by it, drawn back again and again to find new wrinkles in its techniques and its approach to the difficulty of human connection. It's a cliché to call a movie singular, but with Punch Drunk Love, the term applies. What movie could possibly be compared to this one? It makes for a very special viewing experience, and I'd say that's that. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.